Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. What you've probably noticed if you've listened to our podcast is that when I talk about death, dying, and the aftermath, as well as the grieving process, I really like to focus on people's connections with their loved ones and the beyond, because I've dove into dove into that for many, many years, and myself have found it a very affirming and healing place to look at information and see the connections between stories. And that's what we're about today. Dr. Terry Daniel is a hospice and hospital-trained spiritual care provider and end-of-life educator certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling and in trauma support by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. She conducts workshops throughout the U.S. and teaches spirituality and bereavement to chaplaincy students at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Terry is also the founder of the Afterlife Conference and the Ask Dr. Death podcast and is the author of four books on death, grief, and the afterlife. Terry had no idea what what she'd be when she grew up until she was in her early 50s when her son Danny died at age 16 after a long struggle with a rare metabolic disorder. Danny began communicating with her after his death and his guidance in this world and the next changed everything. Starting out as a hospice volunteer, Terry spent the next several years pursuing academic degrees in religious studies and pastoral counseling, and also founded the Afterlife Conference, which is now in its 11th year. Over the years, Terry's helped hundreds of people learn to live and die and grieve more consciously. Her work is acclaimed by hospice professionals, spiritual seekers, therapists, theologians, and academics worldwide. If you go to the program notes, you will be able to access a discount off of the Afterlife Conference that is to be held this year, and you will see this in her, in her notes along with the address of the conference, which is www.afterlifeconference.com. I think you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. It's very um, afterlife affirming. Thanks for being here. Hello, Terry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much, Becky. Happy to be here. Awesome. I am really excited because everything that I've read and dove into about you and your work and your life has just really been beautiful medicine for me. So I'm just wondering um, if you might share with us some of the beginnings of your connection with the afterlife and then how personally with death that um that expanded. And also, as you're speaking with us, if you'd let us know where you're at in the world, so we can just kind of orient to that, that would be great. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. I love uh, hearing when my work has inspired people. And it's changed a lot. So the, the basic story is I was always a really mystical kid all my life. And at about 12 years old, I started, <clears throat> sorry, I started getting interested in, in religion, not in a religious way, but um, there was a Krishna temple right around the corner from my house when I was 13, I think. And I started hanging out there and listening to the lectures of the Swami who was teaching there. And I, it was very deep stuff that I didn't really understand, but I was just drawn to all the spiritual stuff in the world. When I was 16, 
I decided to read the Bible. My family was not religious at all. I was never exposed to any sort of religion. And I was fascinated by the Bible. And I knew right off the bat at 16 that it wasn't literal, that it was all metaphors for different kinds of spiritual teachings. When I was 19, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And that pretty much cinched the whole thing for me of everything I had seen and heard. That explanation of how we come into incarnation, how we die, the space in between lives, and then how we come into the next incarnation, that just clicked into place for me and made so much sense. So that was 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago. I'm 68 now. So it's been mm-hmm. a long, long journey. Um, the the book that you're talking about and the work that I do now um, really started with my son, Danny, and I uh, adopted him at birth. I was 38. He was zero. And <laughs> when he was about 10, he got diagnosed with a rare metabolic disorder, um, genetic, inherited, and given five to 10 years to live. Well, at this point, I had done so much spiritual work in my life um, that aside from the normal expected shock and grief and pain and everything that I would feel as a mother, I also had a kind of mystical curiosity about, well, this is interesting. I wonder why this is happening. I wonder what our plan is together to go through this experience. So I was able to look at it from both the human side and the spirit side. And he died at age 16, which is now uh, 13 years ago. And um, I had begun developing a kind of telepathic communication with him a couple of years before he died because his disease caused him to lose the ability to speak. So just like you communicate with a brand new baby who can't talk, you kind of understand what they want most of the time, we could kind of communicate. Plus, I had a spiritual teacher at the time who taught me how to do some very deep meditations And so I did guided meditations with him. I did some very deep journeying of my own. And after he died, he started communicating with me. I just like as clear as a bell, 30 minutes after he died. And he basically said, okay, let's get this party started. We've got work to do. (laughs) You know, we Mm -hmm. came in to do this together. You have a book to write. I will help you. Your life is going to change. You're going to go out into the world and be a teacher of of this stuff. So uh, I'm over here on this side and you're there on earth on that side. And this is how we're going to do it. And that's how it started. So for us, um, very curious, the very curious listeners here and myself, when you say clear as a bell, tell us how that communication came through to you. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm just so curious. Yeah. You're the interviewer. You're allowed to interrupt me. Please (laughs) do if I talk too long. Um, Yeah, so that's in my first book, A Swan in Heaven, which I think you Mm -hmm. have read. And 30 minutes after he died, I was lying there on the bed next to him. And I said to him, where are you? Can you show me a picture of where you are so I can understand where you are? Because I clearly can see that you're not in this body. And instantly I saw this picture of him standing on the shore of an ocean with his jeans rolled up wearing a white t-shirt, barefoot, kicking around in the water on the shoreline, laughing his head off. Now, he couldn't walk for the last three or four years of his life. So here he is walking and kicking and laughing, and, and I'm saying, what? And he's, and he's saying, this is how it's going to be from now on. You are going to always be able to see me this clearly. Mm-hmm. And this is what I look like without that body and I'm just you know I'm showing myself to you this way so that you can see how happy and how free I am and there are certain things you're going to have to do to be able to keep this conduit open and clear like this and and that's what the and you know I was journaling all this time and writing all this stuff down and that's what eventually became a swan in heaven And, you know, he basically taught me how to meditate. He taught me how to release anger and guilt and doubt and fear, you know, and just be as open a channel as I could. And 
every time I was able to do that, he started coming through with these long speeches, like scrolls of writing unfurling faster than I could type them. And I would sit at my computer and just type, type, type. And it, you know, the words that were coming out did not feel like my words and the thoughts did not feel like my thoughts because they were his. Mm-hmm. And it changed over the years, but that's how the first two books happened. And uh, it, it, it around year three, I stopped feeling him as much. And what happened around that time is I started to go more into the intellectual realm rather than the spiritual realm. That's when I went back to school and, uh, you know, went to college and started getting degrees and looking at science and, and religious history and all this stuff I was interested in. And my mind was just really wrapped up in that. I didn't meditate as much, but I didn't need to because I could feel him whenever he was needed. And like right now I could just call on him and I can feel him, but I don't need to be connected to that all the time like I was in the beginning. And I think that's part of the way our loved ones help us through grief is they stay really close, but we can't always hear them because all our human stuff clogs it up and gets in the way. And that's why you have to have the practice of journaling and meditating Mm. and releasing obstructive energy. I really appreciate you talking about that year three. And it's something I've heard before about, um, you know, you see the common threads. And I think you mentioned that about the common threads that are out there when you're researching or diving deep into this. And um, I kind of experienced the same thing. Um, And I, I, as far as not feeling or seeing as many concrete signs of connection with my loved ones, probably about then. And part of me wondered, I I haven't stressed about it, but part of me wondered how much it was because of what's happening within their transition. And part of me wondered how much it was because of my humanness, as you described. So I I appreciate you sharing that part. I think it's a little of of each, um, you know, they're moving on as just as much as we are moving on, you know, they're Mm. not just sitting there waiting for us all the time. Um, but in, in a non-physical dimension, you know, time space isn't a straight line, so they can be in more than one place at one time. Mm -hmm. And, um, this was explained to me by a medium, a wonderful medium is a good friend of mine, Suzanne Northrup. And she said, well, relationships change just like in your life if you've been married for 10 years the way you communicate with your husband isn't the same now as it was in the first three months Hmm. and you know there are things that you just take for granted in the relationship you just know he's going to be there at the end of the day when you come home you know how he's going to respond to this and that you know you don't need to be in each other's face pushing communication all the time hopefully Mm -hmm. good marriage Um, And so that happens across dimensions, too. We grow up, we evolve. And so he's, he's not this little kid in a wheelchair that he was when he died. You know, he's something much different now. He's moving forward in his evolution. And so am I. So our relationship and our communication style changes. Mm, That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I was really struck by how much practice you were getting with with um, Danny with the telepathic communication that you needed for his condition or that developed for, with his condition. So it was as if that muscle was being built. That's exactly right. That's a really mm. good way to put it. That's kind of how I always say it, too, is, um, you know, and I feel like it was all orchestrated by him. Like he. Yeah. He knew this was going to happen. You know, So the whole thing of him, like losing his ability to talk and me learning how to put him through guided meditations and be with him in different dimensions while he was still alive was my education, you know, or our preparation for doing this work going forward. I'm wondering if you would, um, well, let me first say in your book, you're very real and life isn't, um, always a piece of cake, <laughs> an old aged metaphor, but it, it's not always smooth. Sometimes it's and, a poisonous piece of cake. <laughs> right, right. And I don't, you know, I want people to pick this book up and read it for themselves because they're curious. But I also think 
to to maybe enhance that curiosity, there's such human elements of it that even with that expansion you had already gone through, um, you know, you were in a, a very destructive relationship. And I was deeply moved because I was raised in a household very much like you described, right? Uh-huh. So I was so intrigued by some of Danny's words of wisdom about um, how, and you can expand on this, but what really struck me, and I didn't have the exact note of that, but, but I believe it was referring to, mom, there was so much going on with you having basically to avoid or protect yourself and avoid that you weren't able to connect so much with the beyond or with the bigger picture or with the universe or whatever. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think, I think you're talking about two different things. So okay. I was in an abusive relationship with my husband, not Danny's father. He was Danny's stepfather. And he was, it was really bad. It wasn't physical abuse, but it was really chaotic, narcissistic personality gaslighting, verbal abuse, a lot of awful stuff. And poor little Danny, you know, through most of his life had to witness all of that. And that's like where my big guilt comes from. And he talked to me about that a lot from the other side, about how he perceived it. He was the child in that family, just like you were in your family. And he would say things like, you know, I could see the soul's of, of the two of you and I could see what was really happening and it, yes. and, but I couldn't talk and I couldn't do anything. And so this drove me crazy. It still does. I mean, 13 years after he's died, I still have huge sadness about how this kid was trapped in a wheelchair. Any normal 14 year old boy, if his parents were fighting like that and life was like that would have run away or, you mm. know, done something, you know, took drugs or so, you know, did whatever 14 year olds do to deal with it. And he couldn't do anything but just sit there. And um, so I really struggled with that with him and a lot of the conversations across dimensions in that book, A Swan in Heaven, were about him explaining to me how this was exactly what was supposed to happen. Everything happened exactly as it should. Everybody was playing their roles perfectly so that I could come out and talk about this and teach people and help them with this. So that was one part of it. The second part that you mentioned was um, me having to manage my energy so that I could keep that conduit open. So after he died, I only stayed with my husband for another four months and then I left. And during those four months, if you could imagine the atmosphere in my house was horrible. And I was just so oppressed by, you know, sadness and grief and everything. And um, what he taught me was processes to clear that out. So, for example, he taught me some wonderful meditations uh, for chakra clearing. And I would do these all the time. I would go through the chakras one through seven and visualize them in their various colors as like pieces of glass, like the first chakra is like a red piece of glass. And it's all clouded up. It's dark and murky and muddy. And so you imagine it clearing, clearing, clearing until you have this perfectly clear piece of red glass. And then you go up to the to the um, second chakra, um, you know, to the orange one and the third chakra to the yellow one. And you just clear, 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 clear. So I got really good at that. And the more I did that, the more the conduit also became clear. Mm-hmm. And now I teach other people how to do that. And tell me how you do that. How I how, teach it? Yeah, yeah. Do you have? Um, I have guided meditations that people can find. Um, yeah, I have. I have uh, a CD. It's really kind of off the market right now, but I have the recordings if anybody wants them. Of a guided, you know, guided meditations to walk through the chakras one by one and clear them like that. And in my workshops, we do group meditations and processes for that. And also in my workshops, we do. Uh, different kinds of art therapy and music therapy. And there's all these, you know, interactive experiential processes. So as much as, as you were open 
tell me about our, our listeners about, um, was it a surprise? I mean, did it knock you off your feet having that connection immediately with Danny? After Not his really, because I really, I expected it. <laughs> you know, okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't really surprising. So, so I had mentioned earlier that I had this spiritual teacher who had given me a lot of these meditation techniques. And she told me that, you know, after he dies, you're going to be communicating with him. You're going to be writing books together. I knew all this was going to happen, or it was told by this teacher that I had, who was a channeler, it's kind of a long story, but everything they said happened exactly the way they said it would. So when he started talking to me and my connection became that strong, I wasn't surprised at all. I was thrilled. I was just so delighted. And, you know, right when it started, um, I lived right on uh, near a beach. And so I would go out to the beach every day at four o'clock in the morning and, uh, just pray and meditate. I would write a big letters in the sand, Danny, or thank you, Danny. And I would just spend so much time in that numinous, pristine, spiritually open space. I just completely threw myself into it. You know, I mean, I thought maybe I should go live in a monastery or something. And I kind of did when I left my husband. Um, I moved 3000 miles away and moved into this little cabin in the Oregon woods. Um, it's a little one-room cabin on top of a cliff looking over a river. And I was there for 10 months, and pretty much that's what I did. And while I was there, um, there was this workshop called The Sacred Art of Dying, offered by Richard Groves, who just happened to be in that same town in Oregon. Mm. And they just happened to be having a weekend workshop while I was there. And so I went to that and, you know, that was no accident. I mean, it was, it just, I mean, it, the workshop was happening like almost walking distance from my house, my little cabin. Wow. So um, I spent those 10 months just immersed in, in this mystical realm. And I would walk down the, the trail down to the river and I would do shamanic ceremonies and rituals. I mean, I just threw myself into it. And then at the end of 10 months, um, I had to move out of that little cabin and um, move to another house. And at that point, yeah, I was doing, so there were days when I would meditate like three hours a day, not the whole three hours together, but like a half hour here, a half hour there, an hour there. I was really into it. But around 2009, right after the economic collapse, I had now at this point bought a house, which I eventually lost you know, to foreclosure because of this mm. economy thing. Some, a young friend of mine, a young girl said, hey, you know, you should go to school. You can get student loans. It will help you, you know, give you money to live on and you could go to school. And I thought, ah, I don't want to go to school. There's nothing I'm interested in. And then a little while later, a woman in one of my workshops told me about this program that she was in, and I fell madly in love with it. It was a bachelor's degree in religious studies at a college in Portland, Oregon, which was three hours away. And I enrolled in that, and it was mostly weekend seminars or one week intensive, so I would commute. And um, I loved it so much. I realized that all my mystical experiences were beautiful and perfectly valuable, but I wanted to know about mystical experiences throughout history, not just through a religious lens, but all the mystics in, in, in ancient times, you know, from the beginning of, of recorded history or spoken oral traditions and people in tribes sitting around telling their dreams. So this was all the stuff I got to study in that program, and I ended up with a bachelor's in religious studies. I also wanted to study religion because I wanted to see where it went wrong, you know, where <laughs> the, the Judeo-Christian tradition took a left turn and <laughs> stripped us of these abilities and mm -hmm. this metaphysical understanding. So when I finished that degree, um, I still wanted to go deeper into it. So then I went and got a master's and I eventually got a doctorate. But through all of this, a bunch of other stuff started happening. Um, I 
was a hospice. I became a hospice volunteer pretty early on and sat with many people as they were dying and really wanted to talk with them about what they were experiencing, their dreams and visions and messages they were getting. And as a volunteer, you're not really allowed to have conversations like that with patients. The only people who really are allowed to do that are the hospice chaplains. So I said, well, I'll just become a hospice chaplain. <laughs> and so I did the training for that. And that's why I went and got the master's degree and so on and so on. And um, it's now uh, 10 years later after that. And I am a hospice chaplain with a doctorate in uh, pastoral counseling and I am doing exactly I couldn't have I couldn't have wished for better work than what I'm doing right now I'm so happy I like fall down on my knees every day and just say thank you thank you thank you thank you Danny oh that is so beautiful so as you're so are you working like most days as a hospice well, chaplain? Um, the, the chaplain job, and, uh, you know, I spent three years as a volunteer chaplain. I did a ton of training, but now I get paid. But this is a very, very part-time job. It's called PRN, meaning as yes. needed. Yes. So I just fill in for other people when they're on vacation. And so I really don't work more than a day or two a month, which is perfect for me. Because my other jobs, are, I teach at two universities, um, in one in the chaplaincy program, uh, where I teach other people who are becoming chaplains. And it's a very progressive uh, interfaith seminary. Uh, called, it's the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And it's a group of seminaries of all the different religions. So there's like a Baptist seminary, a Jewish seminary, Buddhist, Hindu, Unitarian, Presbyterian. I mean, all the religions under one roof. And I get to teach there. And I blown away. And I teach these amazing classes um, in, uh, you know, interreligious ceremony, spirituality, in bereavement. Um, and then I also teach in another university in their program called Spirituality and Mental Health. And I get paid to do this. I mean, I just can't believe it. Oh, that's amazing. I wish we would have had those options when I was in my training for clinical mental health work. Oh, well, yeah. How long ago was that? Um, many moons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, like, yeah, 30 years ago. But um, right. Because that, you know, in, in clinical mental health work, even now, it, they don't incorporate spirituality. And it's really a shame because, I mean, more and more it is getting it that way. But traditionally, you don't get any exposure to that. You're right. It's, it's Well, we had, I ran a partial hospitalization program, probably one of the, a lovely part of my career, you know, very, very intense because very intense issues going on for people. And, we, and I, I did have a spirituality group um, that I had this beautiful interfaith chaplain that I had to interview and um, approve, <laughs> you know, that mm -hmm. it wouldn't be too biased and it wouldn't be you know, that you have to do X, Y, Z to get better. You know, she was very, very broadly open. But what the part that was missing and and I think would have been beautiful is this afterlife dimension. And in fact, that's when um, what I started using it more clinically with people I worked with in grief was around that time. But um, I'd had an experience in 1980. Two, when my father died, that kind of cemented that whole energy does not die. Um, mm -hmm. And I won't go into that. I've actually got a podcast telling the story. And, you know, and I was very, very open to, to the continuum of our lives. Mm -hmm. But that part, when we talk about spirituality, like tick the box, have we talked about spirituality with our people? It comes more when you're in the mental health realm and realm and, you know, therapeutic realm. It's more about what religion are they? you know, than it is right, which tells deeper. It gives you nothing. Right, right. So we're not really taught, and hopefully that's changing now with people like you out there, but um, we we weren't really taught the deeper questions to ask. And just like we weren't taught that. about grief appropriately, you know, right. how to help people with grief. Yeah, And that's what I tell people who ask me, you know, about grief counseling is if you're going to go to grief counseling, 
first of all, most people, the vast majority, do not need any sort of therapeutic intervention for grief because it's not a disorder. It's just a normal, healthy response to loss. Um, but if you do feel like you need some extra support and help, go to a counselor that is specifically trained in grief. You know, ask them uh, what specific grief training and, and clinical supervision that they've had because you know most counselors don't have that and in terms of religion it's just like when somebody goes to the hospital and they have to fill out a form that says what religion are you that mm -hmm. tells you nothing about their spiritual beliefs and you know in in research on this topic it's also lacking because most of the research studies that have been done about religiosity and spirituality have stupid questions like do you believe in god yeah. You go to church like this does not address anything that most people can answer. You know, do you believe in God? Well, I don't know. What do you mean by God? I, I Okay, that's no. Yeah, next question. Church, yeah. No. You know, and so then they mark you in the study as non-religious or not, you know, and then they come out with the statistics and the conclusions, you know, that are, are based on nothing. And then with therapy, you know, as a therapist or a counselor, not only you know, should you in your training have uh, exposure to mysticism, including afterlife beliefs, but also comparative religion, because religion affects a person's psychology, whether they know it or not. It seeps in, it, we absorb it through the culture, through our families, and it does impact everything. So fast forwarding from my first book, A Swan in Heaven, in 2007, to my new book in that came out in 2020, my new book is called Grief and God When Religion Does More Harm Than Healing. Mm. So that's exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. I do want to circle back real quick to your speaking about being trained in grief for therapy, if a person wants to seek out therapy. And I always take that a little different direction as well. Um, and a lot of clinicians that I've spoken with who have experienced great loss themselves agree, which is the ask the question, have you had great loss in your own life? Because um, literally people, we've looked at each other and uh, looked across the table and said, what in the world were we doing before we actually went through our own experiences? There's just, you know, and it's, it's not the neighbor dying. It's not, um, it's, it's when a heart connect goes, there's no training you can get for that. And that's about, that's why I developed this project. And that's why I developed this storytelling, because I believe we learn more from hearing each other's stories, just mm -hmm. like reading your book and hearing your story versus saying, you know, looking at it from a clinical point of view, you know, looking at it from the dot points and this is what's next or whatever. So yeah, I wouldn't even encourage, like if you're a grief expert, in the therapeutic realm, I expect that you've had walked that walk. Yes. And it's not, you know, you said it's not the neighbor dying. It could be the neighbor if the neighbor was your best friend, but it's not, Absolutely. It's not Absolutely. your 95 year old father dying either, you know, it, because these are not traumatic losses. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, I have clients who are just completely, completely messed up over their 95 year old parent dying a natural death for years. And why is that? And it's because there's all these other elements that come in and, and render it as what we call complicated grief. When your 95 year old parent dies of natural causes and it's not a traumatic death and they're in hospice or in the hospital or whatever, you know, you should not still be depressed three years later. And so what went wrong in that healing process? And that's, you know, kind of a new field now called complicated grief. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. Religion is one of them. You know, the quality of the relationship, guilt, unresolved forgiveness issues, lack of social or family support, um, a socially unacceptable kind of death or relationship. I mean, there's a long list of things. It's a really, really interesting feel that we're beginning to unlock right now about grief. Mm. 
And again, you know, people have different experiences and their relationships are different. And that's, it's just so individual that I, I do use that term complicated grief many times, but it's also inadequate. You know, there's no adequate labels because every person's experience is as different as every human walking the planet is, like you say, based on what your family life was and, and what that person, who that person was for you. So yeah, I, I just, I just went on a rail recently yesterday and wrote a piece about um, calling BS on grief, just because I think we can so easily just tick a box and pathologize. And Mm -hmm. when what we really want to do is connect with people's stories and hear how their heart is. Um, well, yes and no. I'm going to give you an. Uh, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because okay. what often happens in 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 clinical settings for grief, like grief groups, is it focuses too much on the story. Mm. And you, I have seen many people who are casualties of groups like this that are usually peer led, um, where you know they get together and they just tell their stories over and over again. A new person comes in the group, tells their story, everyone else tells their story again every time a new person comes. And it's just around and around and around and around with stories. And that's fine. That's important in the very early you know, period of grief where it's very acute and you, you need to be heard. The need mm. to tell your story and be heard is really important. But if you're not given any tools to take you out of the storytelling mode into the taking action proactive mode, then you're going to be looped in that story and identify it, you know, with it, identify with it. So you become this horrible, tragic story. And what happens in a lot of counseling settings, group and private, if it's not run by someone who's specifically trained in this, um, people just stay locked into that. And there's one group in particular that I talk about all the time, and I'm going to say it out loud. It's called the mm-hmm. Compassionate Friends, and it's for mm-hmm. bereaved parents. And I have had over the years hundreds of people come to me and say, oh, I was in that group. And all people did was tell their stories over and over again for, for years. And every time I went to their one of their meetings, I felt worse. Or I've, I've actually seen people who've been in these groups for 20 years and they're just looping, looping, looping because these groups don't give them any actual tools to move out of that particular, I don't know, phase, I guess, of, of acute grief. So that's kind of one of my uh, pet peeves. The other thing is a lot of these groups do and untrained people do, and you see this on social media and everywhere, is they have like these little sayings, you know, that these little philosophies. And one of them is, um, this is mostly for people who've lost children. The, the deeper your pain is over the loss of your child, the deeper your love is. Or let me, they say it a little bit differently. The depth of your pain is equal to the depth of your love. That's a terrible thing to say to somebody because what does it mean? Well, you better always be in pain because if your pain ever subsides, even a little, then that means your love is subsiding too. And so they stay in pain. Um, there's a, uh, a web page somewhere, I can't think of the name of it, where I think it's called 64 Things I Wish People Had Told Me About Grief. Most of the things are good. Um, a lot of them are absolutely terrible. It says, you know, when when you expect it, when someone's sick or someone's dying, as bad as you think it's going to be, it'll be a million times worse. <laughs> what kind mm. of teaching is that? And then there's another one that says, Birthdays and celebration and holidays will always be sad. No, they won't. Yeah. You know, so there's some really bad grief teachings out there. And I always caution people to be very careful about who they get their guidance from. I have a Facebook group called Bad Grief Guidance, if anybody's (laughs) interested. Bad Grief Guidance. Um, you're reminding me a little bit of Carolyn Miss. I know she does a lot of work on our um, expression about the whole identity forming that can come with self-help groups mm. of any sort. I don't know if you're familiar with what that. Is it, but again? Carolyn Miss, Carolyn Miss's work, MYS. Oh, yeah, I know her well, but what was the other thing you said? 
just her, um, I just remember in exploring some of her work, her talking about that, mm-hmm. you know, that that can be a, a I, I don't, I hate to label things good or bad, but you know, that that can be a, a struggle for people who get so mired into a particular self-help arena right. like you were or, talking or about. Identity. I remember her hearing her talk. The groups. About yeah. yeah, the groups. And also she gave, she told her, I was hearing a lecture of hers once. Uh, it might've been in one of her books that I was listening to her on the recording. And she told the story of how she was with a bunch of friends at a restaurant somewhere and uh, people who had been in her workshop, they all went to dinner together. And one woman got up and said, oh, I, I have to leave early because I'm going to my adult children's of alcoholics meeting. Mm-hmm. And the woman left and, and she and Carolyn just thought, like, why did she have to say that? Why mm-hmm. didn't, couldn't she just say, I have to leave, I'm going to a meeting, right? And that may be what you're thinking of too, is, you know, how people get so identified with these, with themselves as victims. And, you know, in the, these, a lot of these bereaved parent groups, or even in some of my, at the afterlife conference, sometimes when people register and they put, they type in what they want to have on their name tag at the conference. This was back when we had live conferences before COVID. They'll put something like Cheryl's dad, because Cheryl was their kid who died, or maybe Cheryl was, you know, Cheryl's husband. And they don't even put the name. Oh, okay. I gotcha. They don't even have a name. They're just Cheryl's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And I guess the other thing to recall, remember within that, those paradigms is some of those people are, are, and that's what I run into and was myself when I actually started this project in those first three years or in those, that first period where, um, you know, that is a bit more of the identity or that the storytelling is when I say storytelling here, I'm talking about individual stories being told once Mm -hmm. on here and it's okay. I mean, people, People will share um, stories, but that's what I see in this realm I'm in, for instance, um, on Instagram, because a lot of people have run from Facebook where they were sharing their grief online, even early on, you know, even like a month down the line, Mm -hmm. starting getting to get messages from family or friends saying, isn't it time to move on? And Just a negative where they wanted to go somewhere else where they could have some anonymity and express themselves. But I definitely think it's a, a, like you say, a a developmental progression. There's a period of time and it's different for everybody. You know, that again, depended on the complicating relationships and really how much you do your work with um, some of that, that, that may be in existence as far as your emotional processing. But um, I do think a lot of those places are, there's a progression, you know, that's Mm -hmm. different for everybody that, you know, eventually people, and that's what I'm hoping with the stories of the afterlife that have been so, you know, it's been a a thread for me throughout my life. And um, I was thankful, you know, I had a very religious mother, but was always tuned in to that languaging and, you know, those experiences. So I feel like it's an area for people that can open themselves up of great healing. And even like the fundamentally religious people, like I was raised with, it's here I'm here. I'm saying this to the person who's got the graduate degree, but you know, you can talk to us more about that, how the reframing of those stories just in different ways Mm -hmm. where, you know, you could have a fundamentalist fundamentally religious person that won't, you know, that this is the occult, what we're talking about, right? But then we talk about the resurrection and how we're going to see our Jesus again and how we're going to be with our children. (laughs) And that's not a cult, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, is why your, your last title. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait to get my hands on that because I've got some um, childhood stuff that could. Two things about Facebook, what you said about the family members, seeing people's posts in, in their grief groups, um, Grief groups on Facebook should be private groups. They should never. No, I mean, they were doing it on their page, oh, on their on personal their page. page. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, your family is, is always going to be the last person to really be able to support you. You know, you have to be with other grieving people, number one. And number two, you have to be, you know, have some contact with a professional of some sort. 
to yes to help you. Um, the religion thing, I'm going to say this, it'll be on your show, but it's okay. If, if anybody is interested in, if you were raised in a strict religious family or religious cult, uh, and really have a lot of issues around religion, there's a Facebook group called recovering from religion. Mm-hmm. And there's also one called born again, again. <laughs> and these are great groups. Um, they're, you know, they're not angry polemics against religion. Sometimes they are, but mostly they're very gentle and loving and supportive for anybody trying to break out of that. There's also, you know, a new field of study now called um, religious trauma, religious Mm -hmm. trauma syndrome. So if you were growing up your whole life, and some of the people in these groups, I'm actually very close to them, and I'm I'm involved with their podcasts, and I I know these people really well. And you know, religious trauma can be anything from being told about hell ever since you were two years old and being afraid of going to hell when you die to extreme, you know, trauma of, you know, sexual abuse, ritual abuse. Um, you know, if you don't comply with all the rules of your religious community, you're punished, you're shunned, you know, if you're gay or if you're anything out of the norm, you're told that you're flawed and filthy and disgusting and you're going to go to hell. I mean, this is religious abuse. And there's a conference coming up in May called the Conference on Religious Trauma. I am actually one of the speakers and the rest of the speakers there are some of the greatest uh, leaders in this field, authors and academic researchers. So I don't know what date this is going to be published. Um, The Conference on Religious Trauma is in May. I can't remember the exact date. Maybe yeah, I think this will be going up about May, mid-May. Um, but I'm I'm writing that down, and I yeah would love to see more on that. And speaking of the great segue, would you please tell us about your conference that's coming up and any other uh, work you'd like to share with us? Because we definitely want the listeners to be able to find that. Yeah. So. Um... For those of you who were listening at the beginning, I was talking about my journey with my books and going to school and everything. The other thing that happened during that period of time in 2010, I started the Afterlife Conference. And the reason I did is because there, this group I was talking about before, the Compassionate Friends for Bereaved Parents, was having a conference in Portland near where I lived. And I sent them a pitch to see if I could come and speak and talk about my communications with my son across dimensions. And their response was absolutely not. We don't allow any kind of talk about after death communication or spirituality of any kind at our conference because it upsets the grieving parents. Well, that explains a lot. Continue. (laughs) And so my, and my thought was, that's horrible. So this is what I do. Uh, I'm not going to settle for that. I will just start my own conference. So I started reaching out to authors and people like um, Sandy Goodman, who wrote a very well-known book called Love Never Dies. Bill Guggenheim, who wrote Hello. From yes. And, that uh, book is a Bible for me. Yeah. Mm. And Bill and um, Lou Legrand, who is a, a grief counselor, PhD, who wrote a book about extraordinary mystical experiences and a whole bunch of people who I was reading their books at the time. And I said, hey, kids, let's put on a show. You know, So we, this became the founding uh, group of the conference. We each put in 200 bucks of our own money and uh, started the first conference. And we made our money back. And it's now in its 11th year. That's amazing. Yeah. And those people kind of over the years sort of fell off and went into different things. So I'm really, I do still have an advisory board, but nobody really is involved that much. It's really just me. And the conference is still going and it's at afterlifeconference.com and pretty much every well-known thought leader that you've ever heard of in this field has spoken at our conference. Uh, Raymond Moody, Melvin Morris, Evan Alexander, Anita Morjani, John Holland, Thomas John the Mediums, um, religious scholars like Bishop John Shelby Spong. Um, Just uh, we have... um, researcher from John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, who's doing research on psilocybin psychedelic therapy for death anxiety. I mean, hospice doctors who are doing research on deathbed visions. It's just 
turned into the most amazing thing. And last year we had to cancel our conference because of COVID and we had to do that this year as well. So this year we'll be virtual again for the second year in a row and go to afterlifeconference.com to find out all about it. I have to tell you, that's a, one of the civil, civil, um, silver linings for me sitting on this hill in New Zealand is that I get to be involved with things that I would not have been able to go, go right. choose. Right. So yeah. that's, oh, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be amazing. Yeah, oh, Terry, you. Oh. thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing yourself. Is there anything else? Was I interrupting? I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. Um, just, you know, the conference is the big thing right now. And, you know, with COVID, uh, it is a silver lining because people from New Zealand can come. Where exactly. Come so, so tell all your friends in New Zealand and, and spread the word. It's June 24th through 27th online. Yes. That's and it. you're not on... Um, Instagram, which is where the bulk of the people that follow this platform are. So please send me any visuals you had that I could be putting out there for you. Okay, I'm going to write myself a note right now. As soon as we get off this call, I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff. Yes, because as I will say to listeners and anybody that's listened deeply to to my story or some of my motivation... I'm sharing a lot of stories during this batch of recording that are connected with the afterlife because I believe in the reality of it. And I think um, Terry is the perfect resource. Her list of books, this conference, that if this is an area that you have been curious about and feel um, like you want to look into more as you've listed off. There's so many people out there, but, but you're quite the, um, a good, I was going to say a clearinghouse, but you know, it's your own information as well. You're not just putting other people's information out there and, and, and their thoughts and the, the way they walk in this realm. Um, so you really have a multi-factional uh, resource resources for us. So, Really, really glad that I've connected with you, and I'll continue to follow your work and read all of those books. Read all let's, of let's say their name. So we've got a Swan in Heaven: Conversations Between Two Worlds, and that was the first one. And then the next one after that was Embracing Death: A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God. And then after that came um, Turning the Corner on Grief Street. And then the new one is Grief and God when Religion Does More Harm Than Healing. Very good. Well, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you, Becky. This has really been fun. Really All good. right. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Take good care. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.